Hello. Welcome to another Curiosalus podcast episode. I am Harry Lidgley and I'm joined again by fellow Cambridge classicist, Will Randall. Hi, Will. Hello, everyone. Nice to see you all again. And today we've decided to chat about someone who neither of us really knew much about, to be honest. We're going to be talking about Alcibiades. Yes, I'm excited. Yeah. One of the only things I knew about him that I could remember from an ancient history lesson in sixth form was that he appears on this website called Badass of the Week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's basically all I had to go on. I think... From my from my research, I think it's quite fair to say he lives up to that nomenclature. Yeah. For those of you who know nothing about him, he was an Athenian who um, lived from 450 to 404 BC, um, according to the history books. And he was a famous politician within the ancient democracy, a very capable general and admiral. And also a very interesting figure, his character has been discussed at length by many ancient historians, both Greek and Roman. Yeah, he was quite divisive. Yeah, he he caused a lot of conflicts, not just between city-states and countries, but also between politicians within his own city. He wasn't afraid to jump ship from different cities, betray his homeland, but we will endeavour to explore the reasons behind that and... I think it's fair to say he, he he's not a traitor. There are many complex no. reasons behind his his decisions and actions. And I, for one, feel rather sympathetic towards the the events he had to choose. But it's up to you guys to decide how you how you feel, and I'll try to tell that to you over the course of course of this podcast. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll just start at the beginning, really. Yeah. He um, he was just so well connected from birth. He, it, I mean, it's basically the equivalent of being born into the royal family or something. Yeah, some kind of fringe um, member of the royals or, like, born the son of a duke. Yeah. You know. So he he was the son of Cleinias, who was a general and politician, but he was part of this aristocratic family in Athens, the Alcmaeonidae, who were descended from Alcmaeon, a great-grandson of Nestor, who was basically the really wise old man who sailed to Troy in the Trojan War and offered his sage counsel to everyone. Anyway, so this family in Athens claimed to be descended from him. Uh, but his dad died in a battle, so Alcibiades was brought up in the house of Pericles. Yes, because his mother's cousin was Pericles himself. Yeah. So, so all these big names from the Athenian Golden Age, Pericles being the statesman and general politician who led the charge, really, for uh, the height of Athenian imperialism and power. So Alcibiades grew up in his house. And he also had Socrates as his teacher. Yeah. So just just about every big name from the period he was associated with early on. It's quite remarkable, um, really, how he broaches those those figures together. The two, Arguably yeah. the two most famous ancient Athenians he happens to have been in such close proximity then. Yeah, very close proximity indeed with Socrates, because as well as being, I think, a lover... Well, I don't... It it was sort of hard to make out 
I think exactly they were the nature of the relationship. Was. I'm going to I'm going to talk about Socrates later, but okay. the, at least the view that Plato gives that they weren't lovers as much as Alcibiades tried. <laughs> he flirted yeah. with them outrageously, but Socrates never gave in because he's a model of self restraint and moderation. But okay. yeah. Well, either way, they were also um, companions on the battlefield. They were. Socrates, I think, spent pretty much his entire life within the city of Athens. But the few exceptions, he left the city, was on military service. And at the Battle of Potidaea in 432 BC, Socrates is said to have saved Alcibiades' life. Yeah. Alcibiades makes a, a fun appearance in Plato's Symposium where he says, it was he, that is Socrates, out of the whole army who saved my life, I was wounded, and he would not forsake me, but helped me to save both my armour and myself. So, good work from Socrates. Good work, yeah. So, Alcibiades came to prominence after the Battle of Potidaea, at quite a young age, obviously because his father had died in battle. Um, and Athens was in the midst of a conflict with Sparta in the Peloponnesian War, which is famously discussed at length by Thucydides, who's one of our primary sources for the life of Alcibiades. And there was a peace, temporary peace, between the two city-states, called the Peace of Nicias, who was a famous Athenian general at the time. And supposedly, Alcibiades was rather annoyed at the fame that was given to Nicias and he urged a more aggressive policy against Sparta. He he didn't like the peace, he wanted war, he wanted a chance for glory to build his reputation, his name. So this is how he came to fame immediately. But then it seems ostracism was held and despite Alcibiades urging a more aggressive policy against Sparta, while Nicias was an advocate for peace, the sources tell us that the two of them formed a informal political alliance to avoid ostracism. Yeah, so do, do you actually know much about the process of ostracism? Well, I know an ostracer is a pot sherd, and the Athenians yeah. would... so that's where it gets its right, Yeah, from. write down the names of who they wanted to be ejected for 10 years, was it? Yeah, that's right. So basically, I think it was... A relatively informal process in that this didn't happen that regularly. It was basically held if ever someone was deemed to be getting too much power, essentially. It was a method for the Athenian demos to protect itself against tyranny. And one of the the strange quirks about this process I read was that unlike the modern usage of the word ostracism, which sort of implies social exclusion, essentially. An ostracised citizen of Athens was kicked out of the city for ten years, and if they returned, the penalty was death. But after those ten years elapsed, they could just come back to the city without loss of property or status, and apparently without any stigma attached to them, which I don't know if that would have worked in practice if... Yeah, I'm sure there would have been some political baggage behind it. But yeah, 10 years sure. is quite a long time, to be fair. So Yeah, a lot can know. happen in 10 years. The last Athenian to ever be ostracised, that we know of at least, 
was a guy called Hyperbolus, who was also a bit of a, a rival or political opponent to Alcibiades. And he is likely the person that proposed the ostracism against either Nicias or Alcibiades. And it sort of he shot himself in the foot because in four sixteen he he was ostracized himself. Brilliant. I think I remember being told at school about ostracisms, and I think it was out for some reason. I think it's Alcibiades who, when obviously in those days, not many people were literate or could write, and a humble Athenian citizen farmer came up to him and said, "Excuse me, sir, could you please?" inscribe the name of Alcibiades on my potsherd because I want to vote in the upcoming ostracism and I hate him, not knowing who Alcibiades was. And Alcibiades said, yes, sir, of course, and then proceeded in honesty to write down his own name for ostracism. Oh. Um, I don't know whether that's true, I, but I'm pretty sure I was told that at school and I think that's a, a kind of anecdote that was told about him. Yeah, and there are lots of um, lots of these surviving ostraca, these potshards, which are... Hmm. Basically, the ancient Athenian equivalent of scrap paper, because they were just everywhere yeah. and it was basically free. And I think, yeah, there were dedicated individuals whose job it was to to write the names of yeah. the targets for ostracism on these shards. But I think they were also prone to corruption. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure in a well in Athens, they found this massive pile of... Themistocles potsherds where I think someone had just like put them out the way so that they wouldn't get counted or something because um, there's all sorts of intrigue surrounding this process the perils of trying to host a democracy in the ancient world indeed Alcibiades survived the ostracism attempt and um, really advocated this breakdown in peace essentially one of the things he ended up organising was a little Peloponnesian alliance, which he formed this little alliance with Argos, Mantinea, Elis, and some other Peloponnesian peoples, but they were defeated in 418 BC. A couple of years later, Alcibiades has another crack at launching something major, and this was the Sicilian expedition. In terms of his ambition... After he later defected to Sparta, he told them of his desires. He said, We sail to Sicily to conquer first, if possible, the Sicilians, and after them the Hellenes in Italy. Next we intended to attack the Carthaginian Empire and Carthage herself. Finally, if all or most of these plans were successful, we were going to make our assault on the Peloponnese, bringing with us all the additional Hellenic forces which we should have acquired in the West. I had no idea that of the scope of um, his ambitions, basically. So, yeah, I mean, if the obviously, Sicilian expedition hadn't failed, you know, you could you could have had a, a Roman Empire equivalent. I mean, it never really got off to a great here. start, obviously, given the entire expedition failed. But it also begs yeah. the question of how realistic was this? Was this just him trying to sell a dream to his fellow Athenians, saying we need to attack Sicily because look at all the riches we're going to be able yeah, to get? Yeah, I get the impression that. Advocates for the Sicilian expedition had managed to convince the Athenian population that getting Sicily would be a useful step in the Peloponnesian War in the effort against Sparta. Yeah. But I think the, the lofty ambitions for Italy and Carthage and the entire Greek world, I think those sorts of 
ambitions were harboured within a, a more select, ambitious few. Yeah, I think most people would have been quite realistic about that. And, well, at least Thucydides, after the speech, seems to claim that his ambition to take the entirety of southern Italy and Carthage was simply because Alcibiades lived a very extravagant life and needed the wealth in order to finance it. So <laughs> yeah. I, that suggests somewhat um, the character of Alcibiades. Yeah. I think he was also just getting carried away with the... Athens had had a, a taste of power under the Periclean imperialist expansion. I think he was... Yeah. He just wanted to emulate the great Pericles and and line his pockets at the same time. Yeah, but sadly it did not go to plan, did it? And it didn't quite work. Right from the off, there were troubles. Before they even set sail, because it was almost like appointing Theresa May in charge of Brexit negotiations. She was someone who wasn't pro-Brexit. And at the, at, in the same time, although they sent Alcibiades along, they also wanted Nikias to go along as general but he was a massive advocate for peace. So it didn't really work. And then Appointed general against his will. Yes, and yeah, very much so. And then also, as soon as they arrived, for reasons we will now discuss, Alcibiades had to leave and run away from his city and abandon his duties. Yeah, so it was all a, it's all a bit of a bizarre episode. In the couple of days leading up to the expedition setting sail, there was this big religious scandal in Athens... Because one evening, all the herms in the city were mutilated. Now, let me explain what. <laughs> it's it's such just... a bizarre episode in ancient history. It really is. It sounds like a parody of the ancient world. Yeah. Let me just explain what herms are. These are rather bizarre statues. Square pillars with a male head sculpted onto the top. And this, this plain square pillar in the appropriate position is adorned with the male genitalia. Some evening in the lead up to the Sicilian. <laughs> I just. I just. Come on. <laughs> You're hopeless. I was doing so well. I was doing well. I'm sorry. So one evening, a band of people just ran around at night. Knocking penises <laughs> of statues. <laughs> oh, I, I love classics so much. You just can't make it up, can you? Um, so, Herms... The etymology of Herms comes either through the Greek word hermata, which means blocks of stone, or through a connection with the god Hermes, which seems a bit more obvious. Um, and it was often his head that was carved on the top of these square pillars. Now, before Hermes was primarily understood as the messenger god and the protector of merchants and travellers, he was, and this is a term which I had not come across before, he was a phallic god. Really? Um, (laughs) Not Priapus. No, well, so related to Priapus, who I'll explain in a second. As a phallic god, he was associated with fertility and with luck. And also with roads and boundaries. I'm not quite sure how that fits in there, but there we go. In antiquity, the phallus was this... was invoked as a benevolent symbol of reproductive fruitfulness. And it was an object of sincere reverence and worship. 
rather unlike modern yeah. associations. Which actually got me thinking, because I have seen graffiti on... I think there's some graffiti on Hadrian's Wall, and I'm pretty sure yeah. there's some at Pompeii of a phallus. Oh, that, I mean, and that got just... me thinking, I wonder, I wonder if that is someone actually being sincere, or if it is a bit of puerile... I mean, surely it's got to be crude. If they were more sincere, they'd. I'd imagine at Hadrian's Wall because it probably would have <clears> been soldiers, done by yeah. a soldier. But I mean, it could be both. Could be, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So Herms were these these funny statues, which were often set up basically as an apotropaic monument, and by that I mean it warded off evil, literally drove away bad things. And Hermes in Athens was also sometimes conflated with Priapus, who... What a, what a god. According to the Wikipedia description, was a minor rustic fertility god, protector of livestock, fruit plants, gardens, and male genitalia. He's a rather curious yeah. um, addition to the pantheon. He is always depicted with a particularly oversized permanent erection. <laughs> um, it's it's a rather bizarre... It's slightly hard yeah. for us to take it seriously. I think um, the best thing to do would be to Google Priapus and have a look at some mosaics. And Yeah, the, the best surviving depiction is from the House of yeah. Vetti in Pompeii, um, which has Priapus weighing his phallus against a large bag of coins on a set of scales. <laughs> you really couldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. Um, it's, it's interesting stuff. Priapus was also invoked to ward off thieves. I mean, I'd be scared by any man who does <laughs> something like that. But Well, exactly. I think that's sort of what the, um, the deterrent was. Horace writes in one of his satires... Once I was a trunk of fig, a useless piece of wood, when a carpenter, unsure whether he should make a bench or a priapus, decided to make a god. So I am a god of thieves and birds, a very great scarer, for my right hand curbs thieves, as does the red pole which projects from my indecent groin. Nice. And also survives is the priapea, which is a collection of epigrams apparently written to adorn shrines, and they use rather more obscene language to... Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> ...to ward off thieves. So uh, I'll, I'll let listeners go and look up that one. Priapus was also actually a patron god for merchant sailors. I don't know where all these really... I, mean, I don't know how you've gone down this rabbit hole of Priapus and found all these things. Yeah, th- this really was a spectacular yeah. rabbit hole I went down, um, just from looking up Herms. Very interesting. But yeah, in, in his role as a patron god for merchant sailors, priapic markers, so phalluses, were used as navigational tools. <laughs> like to, to to aid navigation. So So they were set up on like rocks and beaches, harbour entrances, and used to mark like navigable waterways. <laughs> so in today's <laughs> It's so weird. they just be a so giant in, cock just on a rock? Yeah, so in, in today's world, you think of boys and lighthouses yeah. and sort of markers in the sea. 
in the ancient world, you'd often just be looking out for the big penis on the shore and just aim for that. Oh, wow. Several terracotta penises have been recovered from shipwrecks in the Mediterranean because they were kept on board as good luck charms. And, yeah, the phallic symbolism... (laughs) Really milking this. (laughs) Yeah. Phallic symbolism continued well into the Roman period and beyond, actually. And as well as phallic gods... We also ended up with with a load of phallic saints. Sure not. Um, some of these are rather curious. There's a guy called Saint Winwillow from the sixth century AD, the son of Fregan and Gwen the Three Breasted. Wow. Um, <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Yeah. So she was invoked for female fertility because she had the unusual physical gift from God of a third breast, and Saint Winwillow was. Uh, basically acquired accidental preapic status when his name was confused with the Latin verb to beget, which is gignere, because winwillow in what I assume is French was guignore, which sounds a bit like guignore, guignore. Winwillow had four siblings, all of whom were also saints. Oh, wow. That that seems to me like one of the most successful families there has ever or been. Or it's just rampant Catholic Church corruption. Maybe that. Maybe that. Other than St. Wimbledon, we also have St. Foutin, whose phallus was worshipped by visitors pouring wine over it, which seems nice. But the best one, in my opinion, was St. Gerlachan, who evolved from a preapic statue in the Roman occupation of Gaul. And what visitors would do was they'd come along and scrape a little bit of the statue into a drink which was said to have healing qualities then for sterile men and women. So obviously the phallus didn't really last that long. Everyone just, just yeah, came took a little scrape bit. bits off. So then some monks were employed to basically stop people scraping the, the yeah. stone phallus away. The ancient world's just yeah. obscene. Yeah, so anyway, that, that's quite a, a lengthy and bizarre tangent, but... Um, I suppose it really illustrates the lasting and bizarrely devoted importance attached to phallic ideas in antiquity, which, um, drawing us back to Isobiades then, uh, makes it of no surprise that he was implicated falsely or not and landed himself in a rather serious situation, accused of mutilating the Herms in Athens. This was seen as a great opportunity by his political enemies to accuse him of a bunch of other things particularly Asabia, which is impiety, essentially. Just like his teacher Socrates. Yeah. He was supposedly found mocking the Eleusinian Mysteries, which is a very sacred and secretive religious ceremony in nearby Eleusis. So when Alcibiades got recalled to Athens, he'd just got to Sicily, and then everyone at Athens decided, now let's get him back put him on trial. Well, yeah, supposedly they were, but, the his opponents were wanted to um, convict him for a long time and then he was like go on then, convict me. Because he knew that there was no grounds to these accusations of him mutilating all these terms. Yeah, he'd been trying to get to get a trial yeah. held before he left because he knew he'd be able to defend yeah. himself. But then they were like, no, but no, no. Knew that... we, won't, we won't bring charges against you, don't worry. So he set sail and then instantly, while he's in absentia and he can't form a defence, they just literally accuse him there and then of... And then they, they sentence him to death. You know, don't go, don't go mutilating stone penises because 
you'll get your head chopped off. Yeah, land you in all sorts of trouble. I think the I think Alcibiades was actually innocent of the her mutilation. Some of the sources I think imply that it might have been Thebans or possibly Spartans who snuck into Athens and committed this heinous religious crime, basically just to piss them off, make the make the whole expedition a bit more unsteady, and and just throw everyone off track a bit, which I guess it succeeded really. Yeah. Because it it removed Alcibiades from his generalship in Sicily. Yeah. It failed spectacularly thereafter. So Alcibiades then heard he'd been convicted and agreed to be... I think he agreed to be recalled, but when they landed at Thury in southern Italy, he jumped ship and ran away. And then he went to Sparta in the first of his political betrayals or switch team moments. And... Despite Sparta being the the enemy of Athens and any animosity between the two city-states, he actually did a pretty good job for the Spartans. He persuaded them to take him in, and he showed a remarkably... I'm really surprised that that Yeah, worked. I mean, I think he's... Having been, like, a prominent general for Athens... He's collegiate so good, he, that's he, the thing. He managed to just waltz his way into Sparta. He's got a silver tongue like Odysseus and he can talk himself into anything and out of anything. But, I mean, he also certainly made up for it. He, he's not just someone who talks the talk, but he walked the walk, certainly. he Well, he urged Spartan intervention into Sicily, which didn't happen, but he pursued this policy of building a fort declare nearby Athens, which proved a massive problem for the Athenians in the course of the war. Yeah, because that was within the site, within sight of the city. Yeah, he forced the Athenians to retreat back into the long walls so he yeah he really didn't show any hesitation to stop going against his home city he completely switched blind loyalty to the to the spartans temporarily i mean i think there are reports of him the, the spartans had this weird black broth which they ate and drank or whatever i don't know what the correct word is to to consume a broth and yeah Slow. and he I mean, I think it was pretty disgusting, but it was this warrior culture was like, oh, it's, you know, good vitamins, lots of protein, blah, blah, blah. And despite him being some extravagant, luxurious guy who was born into some rich and ancient family in Athens, immediately took up Spartan life in the mess tent and downed this black broth in vast quantities and, you know, was, was, one, of the, was one of the Spartans. And yeah, he managed to ingratiate himself pretty effectively within Spartan society. Perhaps too effectively, as I think he, he rather landed himself in trouble again. There were certainly rumours circulating that he'd managed to seduce the wife of King Aegis. And I think... The son was rumoured. Had a, had yeah, a child. But I, think that, I don't know yeah. whether it was confirmed, but the paternity of him was questioned. Cause I think Aegis had been away. But there, was, there was certainly the rumour going around, and I think that was enough to start turning favour against Yeah, I him. think the nail in the coffin supposedly was one of his best friends was one of the Ethels, who was kind of like a, a cabinet minister or something back in ancient Sparta, and that Ethel one day retired. So he kind of lost all his political support, and then when the king age was like, oh, okay. oh you've, you've shagged my wife, I think there was no opposition to, to getting rid of him. Um, surprised he managed to escape with his head if that actually was the case, but... Yeah, so he managed to get out after a while of... Well, I mean, he did a lot for Sparta, to be honest. He once again showed his virtues, militarily and politically. 
in helping Spoiler from the Palpation Wall. But I think his own... Yeah, he caused all sorts yeah, of trouble. His own promiscuous nature him. meant he caused quite a lot of trouble for himself. So He needed Socrates there to Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have his guardian angel telling him how to behave. But from then, he went to Persia, his second kind of switch... And again, remarkably, just yeah, weaseling I mean, himself into the into the court of the Persian satrap. I mean, he he became very friendly with the Persian satrap, and he kind of discouraged support. The Persians basically took this position where they weren't going to get directly involved, but they could maybe you know give subsidies to one of the city states. They kind of wanted Greece to not grow strong under one unified body. Yeah, well, I think his his primary sort of line of advice was to not support either side in the Peloponnesian War particularly usefully, so that essentially they would wear each other down. Um, I think the Persians were still entertaining the idea of conquest of the Greek peninsula. They'd had a couple of goes at it, and it had never worked, so I think they were still thinking about it. And Tissaphernes, the Persian satrap, seemed to think that Alcibiades' suggestion was a good idea that maybe if both sides were sufficiently weakened there might be an opportunity yeah and the the kind of the hidden motive some suspect behind it is actually he would slowly win favor back with his native athenians because well in the end i think persia supported sparta which is partly why sparta won the peloponnesian war but I think he spun it as I'm trying to dissuade the Persians from supporting the Spartans as opposed to, oh, don't don't support either. Um, which eventually led to his recall. So back to Athens 2.0. One, th- one thing I do want to say, though, uh, is that this Persian satrap Tissaphernes was so impressed and so pleased with Alcibiades that he named his finest park the Alcibiades. Wow, <laughs> which yeah. just seems a bit random. So I don't, I don't actually know how long Alcibiades was over at the Persian court, but he clearly made enough of an impression to uh, to have a bit of real estate named after him. Yeah. Uh, Again, I think you're probably all getting this idea now that he's very good with people and manipulating them, but he also just shoots himself in the foot on so many occasions, and this continues really. So he goes back to Athens because his friends, he manages to persuade his friends to stage some kind of coup, right? Yeah, so so I found his whole return to Athens a bit convoluted. There's a lot of small things that seem to happen. But yeah, somehow through his instigation, there is the coup, the oligarchic coup at Athens in 411, whereby I think 400 oligarchs take control of the city which is after a short time is expanded to five thousand. yeah i think the people say oh that's a bit too oligarchic and then he they all agree to widen the franchise yeah alcibiades became friendly with the athenian army stationed on the island of samos and from there he started to become involved again in athenian military operations and had a couple of successful victories at abydos and then kizikus And then after he'd proven himself again to Athens, it wasn't until 407 that he actually returned to the city when the religious charges, which had been around for years and years, hanging on to him uh, for the Herms and the 
and for mocking the Eleusinian mysteries, they were all dropped so he could re-enter the city of Athens without losing his head. He actually he put in at the harbour, the Piraeus harbour, full of fear until he noticed his friends on the side in, in this massive crowd because he wasn't sure which way it was going to go. Um, bit nervy yeah. coming back to Athens when he was still in a relatively precarious situation. But it all seemed to work out. Yeah, I mean, I might quote Plutarch here. I'd love to hear some Plutarch. Yeah, well, so I think, first of all, it shouldn't be understated how important Sisychus and Abydos were. They were very impressive naval victories, which goes to show that, Mm. um, well, I mean, it further enhances our idea that Alcibiades was very competent when he wanted to be. Um, not just as a politician, but as a as a general or admiral. And supposedly, according to Plutarch, when he landed, the people did not deign so much as to look at the other generals whom they met, but they ran in throngs to Alcibiades with shouts of welcome, escorting him on his way and putting wreaths on his head as they could get to him. And while those who could not come to him for the throng gazed at him from afar, the elderly men pointing him out to the young. Much sorrow, too, was mingled with the city's joy, as men called to mind their former misfortunes, and compared them with their present good fortune, counting it certain that they had neither lost Sicily, nor had any other great expectation of theirs miscarried, if only they had left Alcibiades at the head of that enterprise and the armament therefore. So he really had a turn of fate um, on his second, well, on his first return, rather. Yeah. And I think he was then elected supreme commander of land and sea. Yes. I didn't know this was a position in the Athenian system. He was a strategos autocrator. Yeah. I thought you could only just become strategos, but apparently he was so good. It's almost like the, the equivalent of the Roman dictator, in. just given extreme powers for a short period of time, yeah. just because he was so, so good. But this, I mean, supposedly this is the reason why he falls again. To go back to Plutarch, he says, um, like, if ever a man was ruined by his own exalted reputation, it was... Alcibiades, like his his continuous success, gave this impression that he couldn't fail, and if he did, they start suspecting his motive and be like, oh, you know, of course Alcibiades can't lose, but if he does, oh, he's starting, he's going to go back to the Spartans, or he's 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 Persianized, um, so. Yeah, Plutarch says that the Athenians would not believe in his inability. Yeah, they they simply wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, I mean the guy's clearly. He's almost too good for his own good. And I'm not sure what, what's the final straw, actually, that forced him to leave a second time. Well, so he then put out to sea again and was operating in the Aegean Sea. And a fairly calamitous defeat at Notium in 406 BC was attributed to him. The loss of the sea battle wasn't really his it fault. It was a subordinate, wasn't it? He... Yeah, he had a subordinate called Antiochus, and Alcibiades had given him express instructions not to engage the Spartan fleet. Mm. He'd left Antiochus in charge of the small decoy fleet, which Antiochus completely ignored. Straight headfirst into the Spartans. Yeah, and he just went and engaged Lysander, the Spartan commander. Uh, He got destroyed, and then Lysander's fleet went and caught up with the the main bit of the Athenian fleet, which was unprepared, and then it was completely defeated. Well, supposedly at this point, Alcibiades despaired, and I think because of his whole reputation of being so good, knew that 
this defeat at Natium was going to spell the start of the end. Yeah, exactly. And he didn't actually take part in this the next defeat. He specifically, apparently, he advised them again not to engage, and said this particular position you're in at Argos Possumoi is very disadvantageous to the Athenian fleet, but he got overruled. So he kind of sat on the on the mainland and watched it unfold, and then the Spartans completely crushed them. So he condemned himself into yeah. exile. And then that was the end of the Athenian yeah. war effort. That was the ultimate capitulation of Athens after the Battle of Igos Potomy, um, which I think means goat rivers. Yes. As a fun fact. Um, but yeah, so Alcibiades wasn't in charge at Igos Potomy. He wasn't condemned in court or anything. He wasn't formally accused of anything. He was just not re-elected general for 406 to 405. And I think he just understood that he knew what that meant. If he wasn't going to become general again, then popular opinion had swung away from him. Yeah. So, after his uh, his lapse from public office, and after Argos Potomy and the total loss of Athens in the Peloponnesian War, he basically just cleared off. Yeah, he condemned um, himself to exile, essentially, and went back to Persia for a second time. Yeah. Um, I think he, he went to Thrace first, yeah. where I think he just tried to outdrink all the Thracians. Nice. And then and then yeah, he ended up back in Phrygia in uh, northern Turkey. What it is today. Um and then he was killed. Yeah. Which is a bit sad. I mean some people say that it was from the Persians but some people also speculate it was a kind of conspiracy by the Spartan Lysander, who had arranged his assassination. We don't know whether yeah, that's I true. Think, I think Lysander gave the Persians a nudge, yeah. basically. So this Persian satrap, Pharnabazus, commissioned his brother and his uncle to go and kill Alcibiades. So they surrounded his house, according to uh, Plutarch at least, they surrounded his house and set it on fire. But Alcibiades dashed outside, unscathed by the fire, sword in hand, but the, these two Persian guys didn't back themselves in a in a fight with Alcibiades, so they just shot at him. Yeah. Just like rained arrows from a distance, and that that was the end of Alcibiades. I mean, he did go out fighting at least. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the image of him charging out with the sword. I get. I mean, we don't know whether that's true, obviously, but it seems pretty in keeping with his character. And of course, it, it you know it's the Persians and their arrows that have to take him down. It's not a man who can take him in a hand to hand combat. But yeah, I think he did himself justice to the last, really. Which begs the question of, what impression do we get of Alcibiades throughout his life? Yeah, he generally divides opinion, doesn't he? I mean, yes, he Diodorus, Demosthenes, Xenophon, and Isocrates, to name a few praise him quite extensively, while Aristotle, Lysias, Andesides, and a few others criticise him extensively too. I think this depends on what values you yourself hold. And he continues he continues to divide opinion to this day, um, in the Roman period too. I mean, yeah, the image I get of him is he's very confident when he can turn it on, and he undoubtedly has virtues that can be put to good use, but his his self control and judgment in applying them was not the best. Yeah, I think 
think that's probably fair. I think we could probably agree that he was a good general, at least. For sure. Sisychus and um, Abydos were certainly... Imp- well, they weren't just good victories, they were very impressive victories. This yeah. what started somewhat you know, of a, an Athenian comeback at this point at sea. And, and the losses that were attributed to him... Well, they weren't were fair, not, were they? Weren't really his fault. So back in 418, that, that Peloponnesian alliance I mentioned, that failed, but largely because one of the member states, Elis, pulled out and withdrew their considerable contingent. So they were defeated in 418. And then the Sicilian expedition, well, he wasn't there, so I'm not sure he can really personally be blamed for defeat in Sicily. And then the big one, Notium, in 406. Well, that was his deputy, Antiochus's fault, really. Yeah. So I think when he was actually in charge, he was a pretty competent military leader. Yeah. I think, well, I mean, one one little description of him was from Cornelius Nepos, the Roman historian, who I think puts it pretty well. He says, you know, he was um, he was never excelled either in faults or virtues. You know, he's born into a famous city in a noble family, skilled in every accomplishment of abundant ability, rich, energetic, when occasion demanded, capable of endurance, but in private life, you know, agreeable, gracious, adaptable, but yet, so soon as he relaxed his efforts and there was nothing that called for his mental exertion, his extravagance, his indifference, his licentiousness, and his lack of self-control was so evident that all men marvelled that one man could have so varied and contradictory a character. And I think that sums it up to be honest. I, I think that yeah. is one of the best summaries. Really. He puts it pretty well there. Nepos was uh, also very impressed with apparently his good looks. Yes, he did also he remark. He said that he was by far the most handsome man of his time. Yeah. And this seems to be a theme. I think pretty much everyone agreed that. Um, I mean, the guy's got everything going for him, really. Yeah. The only thing they do note is he has a lisp. But despite his lisp, he still is known as a great People orator. find that quite Yeah, it almost became like a kind of cute feature of his, that, oh, you know, he's got this cute list. But he still was very effective in oratory. Yeah, he was very charming in smaller conversation and a good speaker to the crowd too. And he was capable of winning over the Athenian democracy on the Pnyx, but also his soldiers and sailors yeah. on ship. So, yeah. I think probably his, his finest talent, though, was his adaptability. Yeah. Because as you mentioned, he settled into Spartan life particularly well, and he could recognise that when things weren't going his way, he could go somewhere else Mm. and slot in, really. And this was commented on by Plutarch, who said that one power which transcended all others was that of his assimilating and adapting himself to the pursuits and lives of others, thereby assuming more violent changes than the chameleon. Yeah, that's his spirit animal, a chameleon. Yeah. I would like to briefly mention the the view we get from him from Plato, and I to to talk about his relationship with Socrates because, interestingly, when Socrates was on trial for impiety, like Alcibiades was, and corrupting the youth, one charge that was laid against him because Alcibiades had by this point died a few years ago, but um. They said, oh, you know, you, you ingrace yourself with that drunken fool Alcibiades who betrayed us. And Xenophon went to great lengths to stress that Socrates didn't do it because he was generally similar to him and 
close to him, but it's because he recognised that Alcibiades was very clever and wanted to, you know, to, to, to turn him and make him a good man. And he saw a lot of potential in him, which is why he supposedly took on lecturing him and trying to help him fulfil his potential, which was an interesting charge. Obviously, it didn't really go to plan because Socrates ended up getting convicted. But um, I think I think that also comes through in the, the dialogues we have. There are two dialogues, actually, called the Alcibiades by Plato, but their authenticity is now doubted somewhat. Um, we don't know whether they're actually written by Plato. But supposedly in, in the medieval period, the kind of the Renaissance era, these were some of the most widely circulated Platonic dialogues and were kind of seen as the introductory text to get to get into reading Plato. But um, I want to talk about the symposium because... Yeah, he makes, he makes a little cameo. Oh, it's, it's just fantastic. I will read a short excerpt. So while you can imagine the scene... Some some old Athenian men are reclining on their couches, discussing the nature of love. In it, they're engaged in a deep philosophical discussion. They've had one or two cups of wine, but nothing too silly. And then, in comes Alcibiades. Quote: A few moments after, they heard the voice of Alcibiades in the forecourt, very drunken and bawling loud to know where Agathon was. Agathon was the host of this symposium, and bidding them to bring him to him. He comes in and says, good evening, sirs. Will you admit to your drinking a, very, a fellow very far gone in liquor? And he proceeds to basically say that he was dismayed that Socrates refuses to have sex with him, <laughs> which is the, fir- the first of his many gripes. And then he proceeds to say, gents, you all look sober. I cannot allow this. You must drink and fulfil our agreement. So I appoint myself as president of this drinking bout. And... <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just fantastic. He he instantly orders a slave to bring him um, one point five gallons of wine, drains it himself. Oh, just a small amount. Yeah, <laughs> drains it, drains it all himself, and then refills the whole thing and passes it on to Socrates. <laughs> and and then continues. And this this is actually an official role. So I did some little rabbit hole. One point five gallons. He just downs one. I think I think it would have been mixed wine. But even so, that's... Yeah, I mean, it's insane. The, the guy... About six litres of liquid. So, I mean, supposedly that's that's what it was. I'm, I'm not going to claim I was there. Champion drinker as well. But he yeah. Has every talent. It's remarkable. And so this this role, as when he says, I appoint myself as president of this bout, is actually legitimate. So in sympo- at symposiums, they were all overseen by a symposiarch who would decide how strong the wine for the evening would be. Because obviously in the ancient world, they... Literally a drinking captain. Yeah, they mix their wine. So most of them would take it with water. But obviously it depended on how much water you'd mix the wine with. And it depended on when, whether the kind of, the discussion, the topic of discussion for the evening was serious or or just, you know, boys being boys. Do you think that, do you think they drank more wine or had it more concentrated if... Just if the vibes weren't good enough, if they're like, we Probably. need to get the conversation flowing. I mean, human nature's human bring in nature. The wine. I think I think that you know they they can they can up it a bit. Supposedly, unmixed wine was a was a sign of uncivilized peoples. So I think they they always tried. Oh, really? Yeah, they always tried to. So it wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to prove to my mates that I can down a gallon of unmixed wine. Well, that's the thing I can't tell. I think they were they weren't bothered about the the alcohol percentage of the drinks they were drinking 
but it was more just if I want to get drunk I'm going to drink lots and lots of volume um, of mixed wine as opposed to just pure liquor which they, they saw as a sign of barbarians Oh, interesting. And yeah, I mean, there's this one great quote I found from it's a it's a fragment um, of a play called the the Semele or the Dionysus, I'm not sure which, by a guy called Eubulus, and he has the 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 god Dionysus, the god of wine, describe the process behind drinking at Symposia, and he says, so also just some some context, a, a crater or a crater is like a big jar of wine. And at Symposia, it was kind of estimated that um, there were, well, the couches were numbered between seven and nine. So the the number of participants was between about 15 to 25, that kind of number. So quite, quite big, actually. It's quite a big party. It wasn't, it wasn't just a small, small kind of gathering. But yeah, so he says, for sensible men, I prepare only three craters. One for health, which they drink first. The second for love and pleasure. And the third for sleep. So you know this is the kind of the kind of level where you're a little bit sleepy. You, Sleep being like well, you know you're li- blacking you're, out. No, you're no, so no, 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 no. We we've got a long way to go yet. Um, no, it's a kind no, of no, like no. oh, I feel a bit tired now. You know, I'm I'm a bit drowsy. Then the night's coming to an end. Time to go home. Right. But then he okay. proceeds and says, after the third one is drained, wise men go home. The fourth crater is not mine anymore. It belongs to bad behaviour. The fifth, the fifth is for shouting. The sixth is for rudeness and insults. The seventh is for fights. The eighth is for breaking the furniture. The ninth is for depression. And the tenth is for madness and unconsciousness. Which <laughs> I think is a very, wow. very accurate... Athenian yeah. parties were wild. It's, it's insane. And there's also, we have some pottery images of symposia. And there's one I saw on Wikipedia of a, of a slave literally opening his master's mouth while he chunders all over the place because he's clearly drunk oh, too much. Um, but yeah, some things never change. We all like wine. Um, don't drink too much, kids. I wonder how strong unmixed wine actually was. Yeah, I can't... I wonder how it compares to... I don't suppose there's any way of knowing. Really. I, it's always in my mind when I think of wine in the ancient world. For some reason, I always think of red. But obviously, because I've drunk red... Yeah, I've, actually. Yeah, I've, Did they have white well, wine? Well, that's the thing. I've always... I've had... I've had When I was younger, I, you know, I had red mixed with water, and it tastes fine. But I can't imagine drinking white wine mixed with water, like because it, it's not as heavy. I'd actually never considered the fact that they might have had white wine. Yeah, I always considered it was red. And recently I was thinking about this and thought, did did they drink white wine? And if they did, did they mix it with Don't water? Know, but it depend on the grapes that happened to grow. Well, yeah, that's, but surely, you know, grapes are grapes. They must have had red and white. And I don't know, was it regional? Well, I don't know, but... Some, something to look up. I mean, it sh- I mean, surely, I don't know, grapes must grow in... I, can't, I find it but difficult. It's not like you get, I you don't it, get yeah. white and red grapes on one bush. You know, you know, like in France, that you know, you have white wines. In every country, you you can grow all the all the uh, the vineyards grow white and red mostly. Yeah, but maybe they just didn't have white and red. Well, maybe. I have no idea how it worked. But well, that's the thing. So um, maybe that's something for a future blog post. I'll look into the uh, wine industry in yeah. ancient Greece. Yeah. Wow. 
would like to go to an Athenian party, I think. Break some furniture. I, yeah, I would, I would too. When lockdown's over, 21st of June, host a yeah, symposium. Let, let's share a crater of wine. Or ten. <laughs> crater or ten. Yeah. I have a really random Alcibiades anecdote. Go on. Which I'll just share, because it seemed fun. So this was as he was making his entrance into public life, um, when he was starting to make a name for himself. And it's connected with a contribution of money that he made to the state. So he was obviously from this noble and very wealthy family. And he was strolling past the Athenian assembly when he was told that there was a contribution of money to the state being made. So he thought, okay, I'll, I'll chip in. So he went forward, made a contribution, and the crowd clapped their hands and shouted for joy, so much so that Alcibiades forgot all about he forgot all about this quail which he was carrying concealed in his cloak and the bird flew away in fright now I have no idea why Alcibiades why have a quail, a quail under his cloak um, it doesn't surprise me about the man to be honest like, any, nothing would yeah, surprise me about he's Alcibiades. quite eccentric but yeah. anyway, so apparently the entire assembly set about trying to recapture this quail. Um, Can you imagine and it about was... a thousand Athenians charging over the Panix <laughs> to capture, capture a mad quail that Alcibiades <laughs> has lost? Yeah, but apparently it was a sea captain who returned it to him called Antiochus. So I imagine... Oh, it could and, have been and the Plutarch adds, Yeah, and Plutarch adds this Antiochus became in consequence a great favourite with Alcibiades. So this must be his uh, his second in command. Who actually didn't who, didn't do him a favourite, note him. Yeah, kind of. so he helped him into public life by recapturing his quail, but then he um he was the nerd in the coffin at Notium when he was an incompetent fool and tried to take Well that's the lesson then don't trust so, people who uh, recapture your quails. Yeah. yeah, just let the quail go. Yeah, it's not worth it. That's great. I think it's probably also yeah. worth talking about some parallels, some similar similar characters. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, the best one would be uh, from Plutarch. Yeah. Um, so Plutarch wrote his series of biographies called The Parallel Lives, where he compared prominent figures from the ancient world, and he linked Alcibiades with Coriolanus of, uh, of Shakespeare fame. Yeah. Well... Well, from Roman fame initially, and yeah, then from, later from there, Shakespeare. Shakespeare fame. But I think I'd only come across that name through the Shakespeare connection. Yeah, because well, he's very... I think he's like 6th century BC. I think he might have preceded Alcibiades, despite being yeah, Roman. Yeah, quite possibly. And he's kind of like a semi-mythic figure, because he, yeah. he basically betrayed his... betrayed Roman. I think he fought for... Was it Vey? The nearby city? Um, so, so he was... His name was Gaius Marcius, uh, a Roman general, and then he won the cognomen Coriolanus after fighting against a Volscian city, Corioli, where he apparently showed exceptional valour, according to Livy. But then there were subsequently some... I think he was involved in some disputes with the plebs back at Rome over grain prices, Mm. Uh, so he was eventually kicked out of the city and then went went over to the Volscians and ended up fighting for them against Rome and he actually laid siege to Rome and 
the Romans just, they had nothing to offer. They were just sitting there being besieged, which seems very unlike the, uh, the Sons of Mars. Well, um, I'm very... The Senate apparently realised that the people were just not up for a fight. Yeah. So they, they just weren't going to fight them. Um, so they sent out a bunch of envoys, and that didn't work. And they sent out some priests, and that didn't work. And they eventually sent out Coriolanus's wife and his mother and his children. And they managed to, to win him over. And thanks to them, Rome was saved. But Plutarch seems to... I think his, his judgment falls more favourably with Alcibiades and Coriolanus. Because he says that Alcibiades basically did actually win some, some great victories for his own city. Mm. Whereas Coriolanus had just sort of fought against the Volscians a bit. Yeah, also on a much grander scale. This is very much when Rome is literally just a city, as opposed to a regional power, let alone a great power. I think, for me, other figures that I think of as Mark Antony, for one, Demetrius, Polyorchitas, the besieger, guys who liked to drink and <laughs> were, were lacked self-control. I feel like anyone who particularly likes to drink can be compared with Alcibiades. Well, yes. I mean, but that is supposedly a crucial part of his character that we get. I think for all the effort that Augustan propaganda put into Mark Antony, he, they portrayed him as abandoning his home city and setting up in Egypt. And I guess they would have considered him as, or portrayed him as a traitor. On his return, the Virgil refers to Cleopatra as that Egyptia nefas conjunct, that wicked Egyptian, well, a wife would be the more polite term. It's the same with Demetrius, a guy who had outstanding potential and was very competent when he put his mind to it. And his twists of fortune were several, to say the least. Went from being the most successful of the successors to, to nothing, to then King of Maston to nothing again so those are some guys that spring to mind I'm sure there's plenty more I think you should write your own parallel lives I clearly should do a big work on Alcibiades you seem to be a fan I am a fan I'm, I think he's just entertaining I mean the laughs I've just got from the home story let alone <laughs> everything else is you know, is more than enough to keep yeah. me entertained but he's certainly one of the, yeah, the, sure. the more yeah entertaining and Fun, he's fun he's such an interesting figure. I I'm not sure how I'd not really come across him before. Yeah, I mean I um, I think. But just his his constant changing of allegiance and whether or not that's always underwritten by a desire to make his way back to Athens. Um, yeah, I mean it's a question and, that just can't just, be answered. Was he was he always Athenian and very disappointed at his his exiles, or was he purely selfish and didn't give one jot whether he was fighting for Athens or Sparta or Persia. It's something that eludes us to this day. But it's why I find him so yeah. interesting. Yeah, very interesting career. So, there we have it. Mr Alcibiades, badass of the week. I approve. The uh, Strategos Autocrator. Traitor. Massive drinker. Big lad. Good bloke. Bad bloke. Very divisive. Yeah. He gets he gets a he gets a thumbs up from me, but um, certainly on the entertainment value, ten yeah, out of ten. I think so. For that alone, he he gets my approval. But cool. Well, thanks Alcibiades for all the entertainment, and thanks Will for chatting about him. Been a pleasure. Has been a great pleasure. Okay, team. Well, we'll uh, we'll catch you next time.
for a battle of the month. Valete. Valete.